So <clears throat> once again, I get to do my favorite thing and interrupt people's wonderful conversations. I should, yes, or be a ninja, one of the two. <clears throat> I should have a name tag made up of, you know, Father John Interrupter or something, because that's what I do. Thank you for coming, and thank you for coming online, those of you who are here tonight for this first um, first in of a two-part series on the war in Israel, the war between Israel and Hamas. This, is, uh, the, this first session is about history, and I don't want to take up any of Finn's time. Um, the first session is about history to give the background of this conflict. The second session next week will be about ethics, about using Christian ethics as a lens for trying to trying to de decide what we think and feel and how we would pray and how we would begin to act about issues like like this war. Um, anyway, tonight is history. So Dr. Vin Clark, parishioner, you all know him probably, um, ha has been, are you still department chair? No, you retired, I thought. Yeah, okay. But has, has been department chair of history. I'm the chair of the department at my house. The chair of the department at your house. <laughs> Yes, except for um, someone else who might have a different point of view on that, yeah. But, <laughs> yes, when they, yes, but no, professor of history at Johnson County Community College, and thank you so much for being willing to do this. So come on, come on and do this. Um, oh, I did want to say out loud, sorry. I did want to say out loud. I don't think really this is going to be an issue, period. And, comma, <laughs> it's good in a setting when there is the potential for really deep feeling and um, emotion being right at the surface, it's good maybe to have some ground rules for how we'll have conversation. Because Vin's going to speak for an hour or so, and then we'll have a half hour or so of our time for, for questions and such. Um, and I just want to, if you've been to any of the listening sessions we've done about difficult topics before, like the conversation about abortion last year, that sort of thing. It, it, it's a healthy thing and a helpful thing to have some ground rules. So I want to ask you to buy into these ground rules, and they'll come up on the screen later on <clears throat> at the end of Vin's presentation. But we, we would ask that you approach this from the perspective of curiosity rather than judgment, just to have that kind of be the frame of mind you bring in to this discussion or this, this learning opportunity. Um, in, in what you would say to seek to clarify rather than to advocate. We're all coming with something. <laughs> We're all coming with some deep feelings about this, this conflict, I'm sure. But this is not an opportunity really to advocate for particular positions. This is to understand. Um, given the number of folks, if, if we can limit um, to, to one question or comment per person, that would be helpful. If we run out of things to say, I guess we can start over, but um, I don't really <laughs> see that don't see that happening in this group. Um, to, to express your own thoughts and feelings rather than ascribing motivation to others. So not, you know, well, you know, those people think X, Y, and Z. Just, just claim your own thoughts and feelings. And if you would, don't respond to questions or statements from other people. Well, you know that question three, three ago where that person said X, Y, and Z. Don't do that. Just, just bring <laughs> your own. Okay? That all right? Yeah. Cool. Thank you. And Vin, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. There you go. Okay. <clears throat> I 
Well, well before Israel became a state in 1948, uh, it was an area of a great deal of conflict. And it has been ever since, uh, almost continuous conflict. For the size of Palestine, which is a tiny dot on the map of the world, it's amazing that so much conflict has taken place. The conflict actually starts, the root of the conflict is that that tiny little dot is important to two separate peoples. Um, and uh, so far there has not been a satisfactory way of dividing it or dividing it at all. What I'm gonna to try to do here is to give you a rundown of uh, 70 years, but it, fortunately it won't take that long to do. Um, and do, to hit the most important things. And the most important things, of course, are not the dates, although I provide them in case you're curious as to where this fits. But to look at the general uh, sort of pattern of, of what's going on here and what is not going on. So let me get started here. So the first thing I want to talk about is some background before Israel was ever uh, uh, thought about, about how Jews uh, uh, fared in traditional Europe. Traditional Europe is sort of a historian's term for the good old days. So the good old days actually go back before maybe the Industrial Revolution, so before 1800 or something like that. And um, in most of European history, uh, Jews were strictly limited according to the occupation they could hold. So for example, uh, the official ideology of the church and most states was that all the land belonged originally to God. They weren't letting him do too much with it at that point, but at any rate, that was the theory. And since the Jews weren't Christians, they were not allowed to own land, which meant that they weren't peasants usually or farmers or anything like that. The other thing is that all handicrafts, all things that were made, like these chairs are made by hand, and they were typically made by people who belonged to guilds. And a guild is a club, uh, and these were religious organizations, usually dedicated to the Virgin Mary. And since they were Christian organizations, Jews were not allowed to belong to them either, which meant that Jews had a very limited range of occupations. And when I tell you what the occupations are, you're going to see why Jews uh, often uh, still are important in those occupations. So one of them was lending money. Christians weren't supposed to lend money because uh, they, there was interest typically charged. But Jews, who also were prohibited, according to the Torah, from charging interest, were allowed to, to lend money. So what that means, of course, is that what banks there were including banks by families like the Rothschilds, um, uh, were run by Jews. Um, and if you look today at, in the United States, at high finance, Jews dominate that, and they did, they were used to that when they came to this country. Some of the banks that uh, exist in the United States were brought from Germany or Poland by the, their Jewish owners. Um, Jews could also buy and sell animals, livestock, 
cattle. And what this meant was that often there was somebody who was really bad at getting the raw deal in a sale. And so it was convenient to blame that on the Jews. Um, and then they could also, it's interesting, one occupation that did not uh, require a guild was tailoring and, or making of clothes. And so um, in the United States, the clothing industry and the fashion industry is still today dominated by Jews. So this is, these, are, these come from their, the prohibitions that they had in Europe. Now, there are a couple other occupations that they also became prominent in, and those were occupations that were not run by the state, by the government. So the private practice of law, of course, was not a state function, and it didn't actually exist until about 1850 or 60. And the practice of medicine was also uh, not run by the state. I mean, doctors back in, say, 1750 couldn't actually help you at all. They could probably make you sicker. Um, so uh, medicine was a new occupation uh, with the rise of scientific medicine. So this was an occupation that Jews also were in. So what we see here is people who were very limited in occupations, although they sometimes made the best of them. And we still see these occupational patterns in the United States. Second thing, persecution. Um, Jews were ordinarily not persecuted for being Jewish. They were the only people in Europe who did not have to belong to the state church. But occasionally there were riots and these were sometimes the result of common people getting mad at the Jews. For example, a, a myth went around that the Jews for uh, Passover actually killed a child, a Christian child, and ate it. Oh. Now this is not true, of course, but many people believed it. You have to remember, most people couldn't read or write at this point. So um, one of the most famous of this, these myths is Hugh of Lincoln. Hugh was a little, supposedly, a little kid in Lincoln in England who disappeared, and the rumor was that the Jews had killed him. Uh, Hugh's house, by the way, is still there. There's a little plaque on the house. Um, but there were things like this, and eventually in some countries, like England, the Jews were expelled from the whole country. Um, so sometimes they were encouraged, if the government thought this was useful, and sometimes they were expelled. Um, so that's traditional Europe, and when we get into the 19th century, we see some changes because in the 19th century, all the European states, or most of the European states, uh, had reform governments. And what that meant was that they looked at Jews who were the only people who were set aside and they said, they should be with everybody else. They should not be living in special districts called ghettos. They should not be restricted as to what schools their children could go to. And so they were, um, <coughs> they were emancipated, which was the word that was used. Um, and so from about 19, uh, 19, or 1800 on, 
uh, Jews supposedly, according to the law, could do things that everybody else could. But that wasn't true in practice because in Germany, for example, Jews could not be officers in the army. Um, they typically could not be professors. Um, the professors were hired by the state uh, and there were lots of other uh, restrictions, some informal and some that were just actually set down in some kind of law. So um, that's the situation. Um, and so I mentioned I would talk about the status of Jews in England and Germany. So in England, Jews were completely emancipated. Uh, one actually became prime minister in 1850-something, uh, Benjamin Disraeli. Um, and um, so that is sort of the exception. In Germany, they were supposedly in the German countries. By this time, there were 51 German states all of which were independent. Jews um, were um, uh, legally emancipated, but in reality they were either by social uh, agreement or something like that restricted to certain occupations. They did no longer had to live in uh, ghettos. Um, and um, in Russia, which had many more Jews than any other country uh, because of something that, some things that happened uh, uh, much, much earlier, uh, Jews supposedly were treated equally, but periodically there would be pogroms in which either at the government's organization or just popular anger, uh, Jews would be attacked. And if you've seen um, a movie about Jews in Russia, you've seen these pogroms where their property is destroyed, they're beaten up and so forth. There were a couple of really severe pogroms or waves of pogroms just before 1900. And that's one reason why over a million Jews came to the United States at that point. So that's Russia. Um, in France, uh, supposedly, uh, Jews were equal and had rights to do everything they wanted to. However, um, the, a strange thing happened in the, 18, in the 1890s, which was the uh, case of, of Dreyfus, uh, Theodore Dreyfus. Dreyfus was an officer in the French army. Um, he was, uh, his rank was colonel, so he was pretty high. But uh, somebody accused him of being a spy for Germany. Uh, and as a result of this, he was court-martialed, found guilty, although he wasn't, um, kicked out of the army, and sent off to Devil's Island, which was a French island in the Mediterranean, where he was there, there for five years. Then there was such an uproar that they brought him back and uh, tried him again and found him guilty again and sent him back to Devil's Island again. He was sort of a commute, you know, across the Atlantic. Um, and uh, finally he was pardoned by a liberal president of France. But um, this was a spectacular sort of example that said to all Jews in Europe, no matter how you privileged you think you are, this could happen to you too. And this gave rise directly to what's known as Zionism, uh, 
which is the theory that Jews needed their own country somewhere. Uh, it was espoused by um, a guy named Theodore Herzl, who was an Austrian. And so Zionism is the theory that leads to the state of Israel, that Jews need their own country. Uh, the picture here is kind of uh, weird because here is Dreyfus and the ceremony that he is being forced to undergo is the breaking of his sword. And the sword was a mark of being a, a, an officer. And so they publicly, and I'm sure there were a lot more um, spectators than this, they publicly broke his sword to humiliate him as much as possible. So the Dreyfus affair is important because, for a lot of reasons, but it's important because it's said to Jews everywhere in Europe, no matter how enlightened you think you're living in your country is, this could happen to you as well. So it's the beginning of, it's the beginning of Zionism. So let me talk about the, the area that the Jews eventually went to, so it, which is Palestine, and we have a map here. Um, so Palestine, for the previous a uh, thousand years had been controlled by a big empire. Uh, two of the empires were Muslim empires. Actually, all three of them are Muslim empires. But from 1400 on, the empire was the Ottoman Empire, which was Turkish. Uh, and the Turkish uh, caliph was not only a political figure, but he was also a religious figure he, in, in Islam. He was considered the head of all Muslims. Um, now, Jews were, uh, under these circumstances, under Islam, Jews were allowed to uh, exist and do everything except be soldiers. They had to pay a special tax, but so did Christians, because in Islam, the people of the book, Christians and Jews, are tolerated. The other thing about this is that none of the countries that we know about in the Middle East existed. They were all part of this huge empire, this Islamic empire, the Ottoman Empire. And you can see that this, um, let me back up here just a minute. So you can see that this includes not only Turkey, of course, but also today Syria, Iraq, uh, Egypt, uh, just about everything. So people didn't have a sense that they were members of a certain nation they had a sense that they were members of this vast empire, which was not divided up. Um, in 1917, at the end of the First World War, uh, the British Foreign Minister, Lord Balfour, uh, was friends with some very rich Jews in England. And they persuaded him to make a statement that the British government, this is called the Balfour De Declaration, would look with favor on the creation of a Jewish homeland. So that's an official statement of the British government. The British government didn't say how they were going to achieve this. Uh, they weren't worried about that at all. So at any rate, they had that. Also at the end of the First World War, um, the Middle East was divided uh, since Tur the Ottoman Empire took the wrong side of the war. They were on the side of the Germans. Uh, they lost the, in their entire empire. Um, Turkey itself, the caliph, the, the caliph was gone, and they created a modern democratic state. 
and the rest of the Middle East, the rest of the empire, uh, was all turned over to the winners of the war who were Britain and France. So I'll show you um, uh, how this worked. So this is the Ottoman Empire at the beginning of World War I. And so the League of Nations, which was an organization of all the major countries in the world except the United States, um, decided that they were going to give mandates, in other words, permission for the win these winning countries, Britain and France, to sort of divide up the Middle East among themselves, the Ottoman Empire, and rule it any way they, they, they felt uh, was good. So here you can see these League of Nations mandates. Whoops, going backwards too fast here. So um, you can see that back a little more. So uh, the French got Syria, basically, and Lebanon, and the British got everything that was green that you can see here. So Transjordan um, and uh, Iraq and Iran, Iran was a separate country, but all of the other countries basically were run by the British under this League of, Man of Nations mandate. Um, so Palestine at this point was under this mandate. Whoops. Um, now as the Second World War came to an end, uh, something important happened. Uh, we talked about the First World War, so the First World War through the Second World War, something important happened, and that was the Holocaust. And this was not well known uh, for a, lot, a variety of reasons until the war was actually over. And suddenly they discovered that six million Jews had been killed, um, and, but there were about ha half that many that were still living in Europe uh, who wanted some place where they would be safe. So Jews had been actually going to the British mandate for a long time, but now they began to come in large numbers. And they began to uh, seek to have uh, their own land and uh, to push some Arabs out of the way. And so the Arabs, of course, were very resistant to this. And so this then went to the United Nations. And the United Nations came up with its own plan, which was the partition plan. And you can see it here. Um, let me get my little pointer out. Where are we going here? There we go. A red dot on the ceiling doesn't tell us any, <laughs> anything. But the yellow is, in this proposal, the yellow was for Arabs, uh, and the red was for Jews. Now if you look at this, you can see that the Arabs were given the greatest part of what became Israel and the West Bank uh, in this little, um, in this little plan. And the red on the bottom, it's not showing up here, but in the red on the bottom right here is almost entirely desert. Uh, and then they have a little strip along the coast there and then a little strip on the east side and the Arabs had the rest. Now the interesting thing is that when this plan was presented, the uh, 
Jews approved it, and the Arabs were against it. So um, the Jews decided to take matters into their own hands at that point, and unofficial armies, we might even call them gangs or criminal organizations, on behalf of the Jews fought the Arabs and fought the British, including blowing up the British headquarters in the King David Hotel in Jerusalem to try to uh, achieve a state of their own. And finally, in 1948, Israel declared its independence. Uh, this was facilitated, by the way, by Harry Truman, who was the American president, because he knew a man named Mr. Jacobson, who was his former partner in a uh, haberdashery in Kansas City. And uh, Jacobson managed to prevail on Truman, and so Truman uh, was really um, instrumental in getting Israel declared a, a state by itself. Now, almost immediately after this, five Arab states attacked Israel. Uh, I, I don't need to name them all, but that's, this is sort of overwhelming. Uh, in the course of this, war, of this war for independence, the Jews forced or encouraged 700,000 Palestinians to leave. Uh, we have a little picture here of Palestinians uh, leaving, walking out. Many of these Palestinians were uh, people who were in the middle and upper classes, uh, but it didn't make any difference. Uh, the Jews, the Israelis, I should say, uh, knew which lands they wanted and they were bad, then they took them. Often a whole town would be forced to surrender, a whole Arab town. Um, there's a book actually that argues that all of the Arabs that were forced out uh, were um, actually did not leave voluntarily, but were forced out. So they went to places like Egypt, uh, the United States, uh, Britain, other Middle Eastern countries. The fighting ended in July 1949, and there were a series of armistice, armistices um, which uh, produced something else, and I'll show you what that looked like. So this is the 1949 post-war map. And if you look at this, you'll see that it looks pretty much like uh, how Israel has emerged. So the Jews got the Negev and the area along the coast and the northern area of what is today Israel. Then there's also this interesting uh, whoops, place called the West Bank. Uh, this was originally administered by the Kingdom of Jordan um, and the Gaza Strip, which is today Gaza, was part of Egypt. So that's the result of the 1948-49 war. Uh, the green line refers to supposedly a line that was drawn along the Jordan River which separated Israel from, the, from all the other countries, especially Jordan. So uh, from that 1949 on, there were frequent attacks on Israel, some by uh, official state actors, some by guerrillas, occasionally by uh, army groups from the Arab countries. So it's a, a period of almost constant warfare. In 1957, Egypt decided to um, 
make this even more forceful. And they closed uh, the Straits of, of Tehran, which is right here. And by closing the Straits, of course, the Israeli, Isra Israel had a port at this, this little tiny little area that comes onto the Red Sea. They were able to close off Israel from shipping to any other country or receiving anything in ships. So they closed that. Um, they also had closed the Suez Canal, which is right here. Uh, goes like that. And um, um, then Arab troops massed on Israel's border. The Israelis decided that they were gonna not going to take that. And so, uh, especially since the president of Egypt, uh, Ambul Nasser had announced that the goal was the elimination of Israel as a state. So Israel launched a preemptive war against Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. And this was a six-day war because it only took six days. And Israel was uh, dominant. Uh, and uh, at the end of that, they had destroyed the Egyptian, Jordanian, and Syrian air forces. They did that all in one day. Um, and uh, all of these countries uh, then withdrew and signed armistices, which uh, an armistice says we're going to stop fighting right now, but we might uh, start again later on. It doesn't, it's not a permanent peace treaty. So the, the Israelis then occupied the West Bank, which is this area here, all Arab. Uh, Gaza, which had been part of Egypt, uh, the Golan Heights, which are up here, this little blue area here, um, and um, uh, East Jerusalem. So here's Jerusalem. And previously, according to the plan that the UN had drawn up, uh, Jerusalem was cut, it was cut in half. The east half was Arab, and the west half was Israeli. But now they got both halves, and uh, we'll talk about what they decided to do with these things. Um, Israel offered to trade um, most of the new territory in return for peace agreements, but the Arabs decided that they didn't want to do that at uh, a summit which was held at Khartoum in North Africa. Nasser, who was the president of Egypt, uh, actually the dictator because they didn't bother with elections, um, uh, led the Arabs in a, an agreement not to deal with Israel in any way at all. No contacts, no diplomats, nothing. Uh, and at this point also the Palestine Liberation Organization or the PLO was founded. So that's what's happened by 1964. Oh, where are we here? Here we go. Um, as I said, I'm not going to try to de describe a day-by-day -day, uh, 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 events, but I do want to mention some things that are interesting. Uh, in 1969, Golda Meir, who is pictured here, became the Prime Minister of Israel. Golda Meir was born in Russia. Her parents immigrated to the United States. They lived in Milwaukee. 
she went to a Milwaukee trade school and became a teacher and taught for a while in Milwaukee. And then finally, um, at a certain point, she and her husband, I think about 1949, went back to, went to Israel and she entered politics and eventually became prime minister. So that's Golda Meir. Um, she had a pretty rough time though as prime minister because uh, one of the, among the things that happened was in 1969, the first settlement of Jews moving into the West Bank, which was now administered by Israel, but supposedly was not part, and it was and is not part of Israel. Uh, the West Bank, uh, they built a settlement there, a Jewish settlement. Now, how did they get the land? Well, they took it. Um, in 1972, Palestinian terrorists uh, killed the Israeli team at the Munich Olympics. Um, they started out by taking some people hostage and killing others, and eventually all of their hostages were killed. Um, the West German government at that time was not to clue in about public relations because they exchanged the terrorists for a hijacked German airliner, uh, which the terrorists had taken. Um, uh, then in 1973 through 4 was a war called the Yom Kippur War. Egypt and Syria attacked Israel. The United States supplied armaments to Israel, which helped the Israelis to win again. Um, so now we're back to, we've had two wars, actually three wars. The Israelis have won them all, um, and the Arabs have won none. Uh, and then also in 1974, the PLO, which operated in the West Bank, attacked a school in Israel. Uh, they held 102 children hostage and killed 22 uh, before they were finally pushed out and killed themselves. Uh, some good news here. In 1979, we have the, the uh, Camp David Accords. And this began when uh, the president of Egypt, whose name was Anwar Sadat, uh, and the prime minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, uh, began secretly negotiating. And finally, Sadat, uh, the president of Egypt, the nation that had been the most, uh, had sort of led the opposition to Israel, uh, decided that he was going to do something dramatic. And he flew to Israel and he and Prime Minister Begin addressed the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. And then uh, with the help of the United States, they both went to, uh, to Washington and with the help of Jimmy Carter, who you can see here in the middle, they uh, came up with a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. Nobody had ever thought that would happen and of course, um, uh, Sadat's predecessor, Nasser, had sworn never to negotiate with the Israelis. But the 1979 Camp David Accords led to the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty, uh, something that was not supposed to ever happen. And this uh, peace treaty, by the way, has been uh, solid now ever since 1979. No matter what has happened uh, between Israel and other Arab states, there has been nothing to disturb this peace treaty. Um, 
But back in Israel, things were kind of nasty. And in 1982, there was the Lebanon War in which Israel invaded Lebanon to stop the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, from uh, mounting raids and firing rockets and shells into Israel from Lebanon. Um, and um, they invaded most of Lebanon and then finally thought that they had uh, solved the problem and the uh, Israeli army was withdrawn. Uh, and in 1987, the first intifada, intifada means an opening. And an intifada was an expression of popular uh, uh, impatience among the ordinary Palestinian people. They knew they couldn't beat Israel in a war, so what they did instead was isolated attacks on Israelis, uh, suicide bombers, uh, and uh, this war, this intifada went on for about a year in which there was constant disorder in the West Bank and also in Israel because uh, Palestinians would cross into Israel and uh, uh, carry out terrorist uh, attacks. Um, also in 1987, a new organization was formed called Hamas. And Hamas was sort of an alternative to the Palestine Liberation Organization. Uh, and like the Palestine Liberation Organization, in their charter, they uh, listed uh, one of their goals was the destruction of the state of Israel, driving the Israelis into the sea, as some people said. So now we have the PLO, which is dedicated to the destruction of the state of Israel, and Hamas, uh, which is also dedicated to the destruction of the state of Israel. Um, however, there's still some negotiations going on. And in 1993, um, the Oslo Accords, called Oslo Accords because some of the negotiations were carried on in Oslo and Norway, um, established a number of things. First of all, the PLO became the Palestine, Palestinian National Authority and had limited self-government in the West Bank and they still do. However, the Israelis maintained final control. And what that has meant, and it meant that a few days ago, is that there are Israeli troops who are making sure that the uh, Palestinian national uh, government is doing what it needs to do. And they do things like attacking whole towns, um, shooting people, and all sorts of other uh, necessary policing activities, uh, they think. Um, so, um, in this agreement, uh, Prime Minister Rabin, who you can, whom you can see on the left, and Arafat signed the Israeli-Palestinian interim agreement, and it gave the Palestinians even more control over the West Bank. Hamas opposed this agreement, and, and the way they got even or tried to upset things was to use suicide bombers. Now, we've heard a lot about suicide bombers in all sorts of countries, uh, but they were uh, used, I think, for the first time in Israel. So people blew themselves up on buses. They blew themselves up uh, in uh, busy shopping areas uh, and um, uh, really raised a lot of chaos. Uh, in spite of this, in 1994, the Israeli-Jordanian peace treaty was signed. And then uh, 
Rabin, who had been prime minister during most of this time, was assassinated at a campaign meeting by an Israeli because he was too favorable to the Arabs in, on November 4th, 1995. So here's Mr. Um, from 2000 on, I think the tensions were heightened. I mean, what we've seen so far is that there are a series of three or four wars, uh, but there are also two peace ag agreements that are signed as well. But uh, from 2000 on, things seem to go downhill. So in 2000, the opposition leader in the Israeli parliament a guy named uh, Ariel Sharon decided to visit the Temple Mount, which is the second or third holiest uh, site in Islam. This is yet, it's built on the ruins of the old Jewish temple. Uh, and the, according to the story, Muhammad actually ascended to heaven from this site, and hence the, the Temple Mount uh, mosque that you can see here. Uh, according to the agreement that was made just to keep peace in Jerusalem, uh, Jews were not supposed to, supposed to go onto this, this platform area that you can see in front of you. And when Sharon did that, it created chaos and tremendous dissatisfaction among all the Muslims uh, in the world probably, but especially in the West Bank and in Israel. And this led to the second intifada, which is a mass uprising of the Palestinian people, uh, most of them not armed, except with stones, uh, sticks, and things like that. And what, the, what this led to also was that the peace process, which was sort of weekly going on, was stopped. Nobody was interested in doing that anymore. Uh, in 2005, uh, all of the Jewish settlers and the military personnel were removed from Gaza because the Israelis figured they could never control it. And the best thing to do is to wall it off and keep the people, the Arabs in Gaza, from getting out. So they destroyed Israeli houses, uh, there were many protests from Israelis about this, but all of the Jewish settlers and military personnel were removed from Gaza. So this is sort of the prelude to what we have now, because Gaza now becomes a totally Arab country or enclave, and uh, uh, some uh, filled with people who can't get out. Um, the gates were all closed. There were only two exits. One was into Israel, which the Israelis closed, and the other one goes into Egypt, which the Egyptians closed most of the time. And um, so Gaza now is a, an enclave by itself. In 2006, there were actually Palestinian elections, which were a, sort of a novelty because the Palestinians had never had elections before. And Hamas won the Palestinian elections. Now remember, Hamas is the Hamas is the is the organization that's determined to kick the Israelis out, and according to their um, charter, to kill all Jews, which they thought was part of the same thing. So Hamas wins the Palestinian elections. However, in the West Bank itself, 
the PLO, or the Palestinian National Organization, uh, took, took over. And so Hamas now has simply Gaza. And uh, just in case anybody was doubting who was in control, the Hamas army uh, managed to arrest everybody who might have had some sort of protest. Um, and then finally in 2014, uh, the talks were moderated by Obama. Uh, Secretary of State Kerry flew back and forth between the United States and Israel off and on, off and on, and off and on. But those talks collapsed as well. So at this point, I want to mention what's going on with the settlers. Because uh, you remember the first settlement was in 1964. But uh, by 1992, uh, there were 100,000 settlers living on the West Bank. Now, often they claimed they bought the land. Uh, there were usually disputes about whether they had bought it or not. But uh, enormous numbers of people now began to move on to the West Bank. The ideology behind that is that all of the West Bank and Israel is part of the Holy Land of Palestine, which God promised to the Jews in the Old Testament. And for some extreme Israelis, that meant that they were going to take it all over. And these settlements were sort of a uh, first step in doing that. In 1997, the government began subsidizing the settlements within commuting distance of Jerusalem. So you had even more settlements that were being developed. Um, these settlements were all, according to international law, illegal because... The, this did not belong to Israel. It was just administering it because of the war in which it had won. Um, many of the settlements were located in ways that would cut parts of the West Bank off from other parts of the West Bank, which meant that if the West Bank ever became a country, it would have major problems. Um, Israeli and other human rights groups, and we should give credit to Israeli human rights groups because they have protested whenever there is a violation of human rights by the Israeli government, say that Israel has imposed a form of apartheid in the West Bank. And one of the things they've done is they've built, the Israeli government has built parallel roads uh, for regular roads, and only Israelis are allowed to drive on the new roads. Uh, it's kind of like if the entire country were divided like we have uh, 435 down here where you have parallel roads um, all over the country. Uh, Palestinians who drove on the Israeli roads would be arrested. Uh, and then there was also pressure from a number of uh, sources for forcing uh, Palestinians off land, especially in East Jerusalem, and the Israelis a building on that land. Um, there are now 700,000 Jews who live in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. This is sort of a magic number. You remember the 700,000 Palestinians who were kicked out? Now 700,000 uh, Jews live in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, supposedly illegally, although the Israeli government doesn't agree with that. But these are a major impediment to any thought of the reunification of all of the Palestinian lands. Um, this is a picture of our friend Mr. Benton uh, Netanyahu, a very interesting guy. 
His father was a historian who uh, tried to demonstrate that um, anti-Semitism on racial grounds, which most people had thought only started in the 19th century, went back to medieval Spain. Um, but as a historian, he uh, brought his family to Philadelphia, where Benjamin grew up. And if any of you have heard Netanyahu speak English, you know he speaks flawless English, better than most Americans, probably. <laughs> um, what's that? Low bar. <laughs> it is a low bar, but, but he's, he's made it a high bar. <laughs> um, and um, so uh, he, was, he at one time was the Israeli ambassador to the United States. Um, he understands the United States very well. Some people say too well. Um, and at any rate, uh, he is the prime minister. He's been elected three times. There have been uh, elections in between those times when somebody else has been prime minister. But uh, the most recent time was in uh, 2022 when he was elected. Um, so uh, he has a lot of support in Israel, although probably not a majority, but uh, the, the problem with uh, all governments in Israel is that no party, there are many parties, not just two as we have, many parties, in order to get a majority in parliament so that you could pass a bill, you have to have a coalition. And his coalitions have been more, usually more extreme than he is. Uh, during this time, Israel and Hamas in Gaza have clashed a lot of times in 2006, 2008, 2012, 2014, and 2021. And what typically happens is that uh, Hamas fires rockets, which are getting more and more sophisticated, from Gaza into Israel. At the beginning of the time, they would only go maybe 20 miles, but now they are sophisticated enough uh, and they are purchased from or given by Iran so that they go as far as uh, Tel Aviv, which is about the middle of the country. Uh, and then what happens after that is that the Israelis retaliate and they have a weapon that Hamas doesn't have, which is called an F-16 jet fighter, um, which can also drop bombs and that's what they typically do. In July 2014, Israel invaded Gaza to destroy the cross-border tunnels, tunnels that supposedly went into Israel so that uh, uh, terrorists could enter Israel. Uh, after they claimed that they had destroyed them all, they withdrew all of their forces back into Israel. And this may seem like uh, we're seeing something like this happening again. Uh, so that's 2014. Um, Recent developments in 19, in, um, in 1970, I should say 19, in 2017, the Trump administration decided to do something that was deeply offensive to the Palestinians, which is to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv, which is out here on the coast, to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem uh, was seen by the Palestinians and most of the rest of the world as being an international city that Israel didn't control. So what they're saying, basically what the, what the Palestinians interpreted the Israelis as saying is we're never gonna give up Jerusalem, any part of it, 
although they've all said that in words too, but now the United States seems to have endorsed that idea. And they also, the United States also announced that the Golan Heights, which are a series of highlands here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is right here, which is, they're very useful for, for firing uh, heavy weapons, uh, that, that it used to be part of Syria, and then you remember back in the Six-Day War, they, the Israelis got it, that now the Golan Heights were actually part of Israel proper. Um, so that's what happens in 1971, um, 2017. In late 2020, Israel normalized relations with uh, some small countries, most of them are small, located quite a ways from Israel, but they're Muslim countries, and they are Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, uh, which at various times is an actual country and other times it's not, and Morocco. Um, so this is a real breakthrough besides Egypt and Jordan that the Israeli, that the, the, they persuaded these countries to also recognize Israel. And then Netanyahu was reelected in 2022. And his current coalition includes parties that have announced that they want to either expel all Palestinians from the West Bank or an exit to Israel and make it part, a part of Israel. There was actually a proposal uh, which was sort of postponed by the most recent war for Israel to take over 30% of the West Bank and make that part of Israel as well. Um, so that's where we are right now, except of course, uh, going back a month, uh, we see a repetition of the Hamas attack on Israel, except much bigger than before. Uh, and uh, the Israeli response, which has been, is also much bigger than before. So what I'd like to say in conclusion, if we could just sort of sum this up, is uh, first of all, um, ever since Israeli independence in 1948, Israel and the Palestine have been embroiled in deadly conflict. And uh, the word deadly is chosen purposely because people get killed in every one of these encounters. War and peace have, relative peace have alternated. Uh, some of the peace is permanent, like the peace treaty with Egypt and Jordan probably. Others is iffy. Um, significant progress has taken place with peace treaties between Israel and Egypt, Jordan, and some of the West Bank Palestinians. The status of the Palestinians remains unsettled and will continue to generate violence, I think, until the settlement of this inherent conflict. Um, you have two million people uh, who are not happy where they are, who think that they're, they're being cheated. And in the past, they have been willing to inflict all sorts of violence on the people they think are cheating them. One other thing I should mention, and that is that the Palestinian growth rate is much faster than the Israeli growth rate. The typical uh, Palestinian uh, woman has six children, and the typical Israeli woman has one and a half. And so if you look at this, what you can see is that pretty soon the Palestinians will far outnumber the Israelis. And the Israelis are concerned about this, but they don't know quite what to do. Um, I don't know what you do either. Um, what's that? That's, well, well, that's, you've got to get somebody to take them. <laughs> um, 
the uh, peace treaties have been negotiated by outstanding people on both sides, and I would include in that uh, not only Menachem Begin and Rabin and, uh, and Sadat, um, but also the two American presidents who were successful at doing this, uh, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. Whatever you think about them, they've done something that nobody else has been able to pull off. Um, a settlement of this underlying conflict will require courageous peacemakers on both sides. And when will this take place? Nobody knows. So uh, that's where we are right now. Oh, one other thing, I've got to show you the rules. Here are the rules. Yes, Terry. Yeah, I have a question. Um, Yeah, my question relates to the, uh, the follow-on negotiations that uh, Bill Clinton had, uh, very intense negotiations right. near the end of his term in 1999 and right. 2000, where, as I understand it, they got very close to mm -hmm. a peace treaty. And at the end of the day, it was Yasser Arafat that, that uh, he walked it, away. Yes. walked away. I'm, right. I'm interested in your comments on that. How close were they, and where very, do you think the long-term impact would have been? Well, you never have a deal until you have a deal, right? <laughs> Um, and I think Arafat realized that he was in a very, a very weak position, and um, he was afraid to go any further. Just put your hand if you'd like to say something, and we'll bring you a mic. But that's a good question, Terry. When you say... Yes. Define the West Bank. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Uh, this lady was Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I will in a working? minute. Yeah, okay. When you say uh, Arafat was in a weak position, what do you mean? Do you mean he didn't feel like he had the uh, the support of uh, the rest or the Palestinians? Or, or well, he didn't have an army. Um, the Israelis had one of the best armies in the world for the size of country they have, um, and he didn't. He he felt that if he agreed, that uh, his competitors in the West Bank uh, might revolt against him. That would be Hamas. Um, and I think he just couldn't foresee how this would turn out. And so rather than staying around to uh, deal with Bill Clinton and Rabin, he said, I, I'm going home. Not quite that uh, curt, but uh, that was the basic idea. Yes, the West Bank. Define the West Bank for me. I'll, I'll show you a map. Whoops. So this shows the West Bank here. Can you see it? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't turn the screen. <laughs> so it's this little area here that says West Bank on it. But it's on the, it's, it's on the east. The Jordan River runs right here. West Bank of the River. So, so that's west. what defines the east and west. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes. Uh, in in your expert opinion, <laughs> as a historian. Um, it's called guessing. 
What? <laughs> Good guessing, though. I hope. Uh, what? What is? Would you say is the central issue that keeps these two people apart? Um, what issue has to be somehow addressed, or we see this going on again, off again, on again, off again? My personal again, view is that uh, what's holding it up. Uh, final settlement would be if a separate country were created on the West Bank for the Palestinians. That would take care of the their main uh, grievance. Now, since 700,000 of them were expelled from what is today Israel, there are people who still have real estate claims and all sorts of other claims as well. But I think that would go a long ways toward, toward uh, uh, calming the situation down. I think Hamas would probably go away. Um, but that, as I said, that's a guess. And there are a lot of political reasons why that won't happen soon. Are the rules one question? <laughs> yes. Okay, so Vin, is the West Bank, is that not part of it? Is it, I thought it was a separate country. It was never a country. It used to be, it was one of those territories in the Ottoman Empire. It was administered by Jordan. Jordan made the mistake of losing a war, and so the Israelis then uh, occupied it. And that's the status of it. It's an occupied territory. So it's just kind of no man's land. Exactly. It's, oh. Uh, so... Uh, something occurred to me just now. I don't know if people who live in the West Bank can get passports if they're citizens of any country. Yes? I'm always confused between Hamas and Palestinians. Are Hamas, is that the government of the Palestinians or where do they come from? It's a, par it's a party. Like it's a party, but who is an actual leader of Hamas? Um, if there is one. He might be dead by now. I don't oh. know. <laughs> but I thought that Hamas had influence from all other countries around there, other people coming in, helping. Well, you're right. Well, they are, supported. They are supported by Iran yeah. and uh, some other countries, some other Muslim countries. So they get ammunition, uh, rockets, uh, rifles, and so forth from Iran. So when you see the Palestinians flee their country, where can they be accepted? It's a good question. <laughs> That's why until a couple of days ago, the Egyptians refused to allow them to go through the southern gate. It's just a lost country. Um, there are two million people yeah. who are residents of uh, Gaza. And there is very little interest in most of the surrounding countries of accepting all those people. <clears throat> if they could get out. Yeah. If no one has a question right now. I think Don had a follow-up. Oh, okay. Don? Sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, Back before the State of Israel, mm -hmm. um, 
both Christians and Jews lived rather amicably under mm -hmm. Muslim rule for right. 1,500 years. Right. Uh, as second-class citizens. Yes. But they were allowed because they were children of the book. Mm -hmm. And it was the Muslim perception, I understand, that they were allowed to stay in because mm -hmm. eventually they would convert to Islam. Uh, that was one idea. Otherwise, um, they knew in most cases, especially of, of Jews, that they were not going to convert to Islam. But they were tolerated because they were seen as people who were the descendants of Abraham, as the Arabs were, um, uh, sort of estranged brothers and sisters. Cousins. Cousins. Uh -huh. So to, to ask the question then, uh, well, the, the Christians and the Jews were not allowed to proselytize to Muslims. Right. Muslims were required to try and convert Christians and Jews for 1,500 years. And they maintained a certain level of peace. It's when Israel took the land that, pardon the expression, all hell broke loose. Mm -hmm. Is it remotely possible, in, in your opinion, that Israel can maintain land because God gave it to them, they believe, and the Muslims can live with Israel and by doing that acknowledge that the Muslims themselves are not the final communication with God. Well, I don't, the, last, the last part they wouldn't, they would reject. Uh, but there are a number of Muslim Arabs who are Israeli citizens. It's about almost 20% now. Uh, and they claim that they're discriminated against but they have Israeli citizenship and supposedly all the rights of other Israeli citizens. So I don't know what the, the answer is. Uh, there's a conflict, of course, between the idea that Israel, Israel is the home of the Jews and people who are not Jewish who want to live there. So that's... Uh, I don't think I don't think that's ever been settled. It's something that's debated. And, um, I mentioned the uh, difference in population growth. The Arab Israelis, the Israeli Arabs, have the same kind of population growth as there is on the West Bank. So, conceivably, at some point, they may become the majority. There is actually a party uh, for, of Arabs, Israeli Arabs that has a couple seats in the Knesset. So your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> yes? When Moses was led to the hilltop or the mountain to overlook where his people were to take over, I guess, or to go, where, where is that at? I'm not, I'm not sure, do you know? <coughs> I think it's somewhere in, in what is today Jordan. Yeah, roughly. I mean, I don't know. You weren't there? No, wasn't there. <laughs> um, but, I mean, just within the very limited geography here, it, it's going to be someplace about there. You know, they, they, had, they had come around, um, had, not, had not gone directly into what would later be Israel, but, but came around. And there's, there's the story of 
<clears throat> the, the people of Israel crossing over the Jordan, you know, mm -hmm. crossing over Jordan, that's where that comes from, right? So, and, and, and a parallel story uh, with the Red Sea being parted in, in the, the story of the Jordan being stopped and the people coming across on dry land across the Jordan, right? Mm -hmm. So it was coming from this direction into the land that they were then about to occupy. But so someplace north of the Dead Sea and south of the Sea of Galilee, roughly. One of the problems with this that hasn't received much discussion, at least in the American press, is that Israel at the time of Solomon or David had land on the other side on the east bank of the Jordan River too, quite a lot of it actually. Uh, you can take your Bible out and look in the back at the maps and you can see that. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, I, I'm interested in, in um, I know that as part of the uh, war in the late 40s that Jordan lost. I think that was the war. But in any event, there, there were They very, lost three. Well, very, but there were, there were a very large number of Palestinians that, that crossed the Jordan River, ended up in Jordan and into so-called refugee camps, which have mm -hmm. over 70 years now become permanent settlements. Right. What's the status of those people? Do they have Jordanian citizenship? Or are they? Not as, I don't know, but I don't think so. Uh, the Jordanians have been very, actually conducted their own private little war to chase the PLO back across the Jordan River onto the West Bank. Um, I mean, do you have a sense of how many uh, people there are? I think there are 100,000 or something like that. But the Jordanians are not interested in even taking over the West Bank again. Too much trouble. <laughs> any other questions? Yes? Is, is there any, do you know of any historical precedent of, for, for, for people with such bitter division and, and one could argue almost equivalent history of bad behavior <laughs> mm -hmm. reconciling. Is, is there a historical precedent for what one would hope to see happen here? Has that happened anyplace else? Well, I think only in, only in Israel and between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan. Those are really the only places. I mean, uh, you might think of um, the former Soviet Union which has some of the same kinds of conflicts about who belongs in which uh, new country. But one of the things that's kind of interesting is that up until about 1800, people did not have any sense that their ethnic group should be ruling a country, their country. So a good example of that probably is um, um, Ukrainians. Ukra Ukrainians never had their own country until recently. They tried uh, right at the end of the First World War, but that was unsuccessful. But they still kept the same language, same religions, and so forth. So because people just didn't have this notion that uh, if you were German, you had to be in a German country. They, um, and there were lots of people, lots of ethnic groups that lived in all sorts of countries. But since about 1800, people have felt very, very nationalistic, and they wanted to be in their country. Of course, the United States does not, does not facilitate that, uh, 
which is perhaps one reason why some people are so anxious about immigration. Other questions, comments? Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Van. That was great. So, so just a shameless promo for next time. Um, we'll do this again in a week. Uh, we'll, same same uh, organization. You're welcome to come for worship at 5.30 and dinner at 6 and then the class at 6.30 or whatever is, is most convenient for you. Next time it'll be uh, Dr. Don Compierre, who's the dean of Bishop Camper School for Ministry and an ethicist. And that's what he's going to be talking about is Christian ethics and how Christian ethics apply to war and perhaps specifically how Christian ethics applied to war apply in the Israel-Hamas conflict. So please come back. <laughs>